episode brought to you by a first-generation Microsoft Surface and a very old set of Razer headphones. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we assign you homework and hopefully make it fun. I'm your host, Pete, and today I am feeling very full from a tasty brunch. Uh, with me, as always, is my co-host and fellow podcaster. Martha Sullivan, and at the moment I'm a little agog that you couldn't think of anything cleverer than just brunch eater. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't frequently have brunch, so it's like a special occasion thing. Oh, well, I'm a professional youth hockey fan today. Uh, we spent most of the weekend watching uh, some U16 hockey, which was intense uh, and highly enjoyable. Nice. Well, related to that, with us today in our third chair is a friend of the show and Martha's husband, Bill. Uh, Bill, introduce Hooray! yourself. Hey, I am a, I don't have a good introduction because Martha took mine. I am a current hockey fan yelling at the uh, live stream of the Penguins Flyers game. Uh, and long, long, long time incredible nerd. <laughs> because even though you're born and raised in Chicagoland area, you're a Penguins fan. Look, man, if it was on TV when I was a kid, I would have watched it. But uh, the, Wirtz the Wirtz family screwed themselves out of a fan. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Alright, so today we are going to be talking about anti-heroes, but before we do that, we're going to share with you, our audience, our pop culture credentials. You know the drill. It's the piece of pop culture that we have consumed most recently, not edited for quality assurance. Uh, Martha, let's start with you. Uh, well, once again, I find myself in the position of not being able to talk about the thing that I want to talk about. Uh, so instead of talking about the incredibly stupid book I'm reading about giant megalodon sharks living in the Mariana Trench, hmm. I will talk to you about Pokemon Go, which, uh, because of their new field research mechanic, uh, has prompted me to come back to the game after um, the raid mechanic didn't work super well for me, which was very discouraging. But now the field research has provided me an alternative method to capturing legendary Pokemon. Uh, so I'm back in the game, baby. All right. I stopped playing after the first, like, initial burst of excitement around it. So I'm glad to see that they're still tweaking it. Hopefully yeah, you're missing the out. There's some good stuff happening. Yeah. My my phone's battery uh, is not sad, though, that I'm not doing that. So... <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, I bought a portable battery basically because of Pokemon Go. <laughs> nice. Uh, Bill, how about you? What's your pop culture credential? Uh, I think my last one was the uh, Between Periods coverage of Penn's Flyers. Oh, yep, checks out. <laughs> Since you had just said that you were watching that. Um, we are hoping for a decisive victory today. It's not looking great. It's 3-2. Mm. No! It's left in the second. Which I've immediately dated this episode. Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, what, what's the outcome of this game? Like, is this... Uh... If it's a decisive victory, uh, they... the so yeah. If the Penguins win, they uh, knock out the Flyers and move on to the second round, which will be against either the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets or the Washington Capitals for the bajillionth time. Mm -hmm. uh, if they lose, they've got two more shots. Okay, so I'm hoping wrong. they one win and they're up one game. I'm hoping they win and they get to play the Capitals so that they can make Ovechkin sad again. <laughs> I've got a cousin who's a, a, a big Capitals fan, so I get that joke. He's only good for two rounds, and he's done? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm in the same boat as Martha of not being able to talk about the thing I want to talk about. Uh, I wanted to talk about Isle of Dogs. It's delightful. Go see it. Uh, instead, I'm going to talk about Field Report, which is a band, a Milwaukee band. Yesterday was Record Store Day, so I went out and bought a bunch of records. Um but myself and yeah, um, yeah, oh yeah. Record stores have I keep like, on thinking about going and making fun of them. Oh, it was like it was super busy. It was great. Um, they have stuff that they like sell only on Record Store Day, um, discounts that kind of thing. I went in specifically with the goal of nothing over twenty dollars and nothing that I already had digitally, and I succeeded. Um, 
one of the things I got was a new album by the band Field Report, which is a cool Milwaukee band. So supporting local music and records. Yeah, I'm always really torn about Record Store Day because I'm extremely in favor of physical copies of things and supporting local businesses, especially in the arts. But I hate vinyl. <laughs> right. So it's just sort of a like, I would give you money for this if you had it on a relevant medium. But you don't. Sorry, guys. I mean, I, I love new vinyl coming with an MP3 download because I like vinyl, yes. but I also like MP3. Be- well, you like, like being, being able, able to, to listen to the music that you buy. <laughs> yes. And like, if it's a nice Saturday afternoon where I'm relaxing and reading, I'll definitely throw some vinyl on. Otherwise, I'm probably listening it to it off the computer, off the phone, whatever. So the combination of the two is like the perfect place. What if we developed like a tiny vinyl player, like a little metal disc that spins? <laughs> but you don't oh, get wait. that. You don't get that warmth sound that you can definitely hear from vinyl. And I'm not just making that up. <laughs> uh huh. And it's it's always the people that don't have thousand dollar speakers. It's like, look, man, I've seen your speakers. You can't hear the difference. Yeah, like no, seriously. I, I don't have gold plated nonsense. Whatever, whatever. It all sounds the same whether I'm doing it through Bluetooth or through vinyl. I just like the ritual sure if, it, if it's an object fetishism i get it yeah right like i there are a couple of albums i have almost purchased simply to frame mm-hmm. because i wanted that you know nice big 11 inch square album art on my wall i know a couple of people who've who've have done that not framed it yet but like bought vinyl without having any way to play it just because they want that vinyl yeah all right cool well let's segue into the episode proper Today we're talking about antiheroes. Uh, we're going to be starting with a definition of what exactly an antihero is, because it's been changing throughout time, and our three homework assignments are three radically different interpretations of antiheroes, antiheroism. Um, we're going to be exploring why our culture is so fascinated by antiheroes, and we're going to be looking at why there are so few female antihero characters. Uh, wrapped into this, this is sort of the second part of a two-part episode um, last episode, we talked about toxic masculinity and, you know, based on the fact that one of the things we want to talk about is how few female characters there are, I think toxic masculinity is going to weave its way through our discussion about antiheroes, um, hopefully in a very natural and non-awkward way. Uh, let's go with Martha. Why don't you lead off with your homework? Because you, uh, did pick one specifically because it's a female antihero character. Sure. Uh, yeah, as Pete said, uh, when I set about picking my homework for this, uh, I wanted very specifically to have a female uh, character who we could talk about, and I didn't want to have a, I didn't want it to be a comic, uh, because one of our other homeworks is a comic book movie, and I wanted to get some diversity in uh, the kinds of characters we were talking about. Uh, so I went with the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Steve Larson, uh, which I think holds the record now for the longest piece of homework that has been assigned for this show. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, (laughs) uh, So The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo uh, is the first book in the Millennium Trilogy, uh, which have been adapted into a set of Swedish films and then one American movie starring Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara. Uh, It features uh, the anti-hero character of Lisbeth Salander, who is a 24-year-old a computer hacker who works for a a securities and investigation firm. Uh, The rough plot of this movie, or of this book, sorry, because we did read the book. Um, That being said, having watched the movies was really useful reading the book. Yes, there's a lot of names. (laughs) Yeah. And the book has a lot of words. I didn't remember how, like I knew it was long, but it felt very wordy. Um, But anyway, so... In brief, uh, it's the book about a journalist named Mikhail Blomqvist who gets hired uh, by the aging head of a like Swedish old money family to investigate the disappearance of his niece, which happened 50 years ago, 40 years ago. It happened in 1966, and the, movie, the book takes place roughly around now. Uh, and... In the course of investigating her disappearance, he uncovers uh, a series of unsolved murders of women that have happened from 1966 until now. 
And he does so with the aid of Lisbeth Salander, who uh, originally is hired by her firm to do an investigative report about Blomqvist, which is how the two of them kind of connect. Um, it With her ingenuity, they are able to uncover previously um, unseen connections between the deaths of all of these women and the disappearance of this girl. And at the end, not only solve the case, but also steal a great deal of money from somebody who was antagonizing Blomqvist at the beginning of the book during some uh, financial investigation and uh, shenanigans. Um, I had read the book a while ago uh, before I watched the movies. I think the movie, as particularly the American version, does a lot of streamlining of this story. <laughs> yes. Um. But yeah, so I think all three of us now have both watched at least the American version of the American film and then read the book. So what are we? What are our thoughts on uh, Elizabeth Salander and her anti-hero nature? Before we get into that, I also like that this is your accidental second Nazi book uh, that you've assigned in oh as many God. episodes. Oh my God, I had not, had not even thought of that. <laughs> um, I... I think that yeah, the like, Nazis kind of take a backseat to the sex crime but it's in a, uh, Dragon Tattoo, but they're definitely present. Right. It's like Nazi sex crime. Um, and significantly more so in the book than the film, at least the American one. Yeah. Um, I, I was fascinated by the book. I really enjoyed reading it after having, like, I, I saw both versions of the movies at various points. Um, I enjoyed them both. I enjoyed the book a lot. I appreciated how streamlined the American version was. Um, and I think that the American version, both movie versions, I think Elizabeth is coded much more anti-hero-y, if only because it's a visual medium, and you can immediately, like, the way they dress her and everything else, um, reading it in a book, you're like, all right, she's sort of like a goth character, um, but both Rooney Mara and, uh, I am- Numi Rapace. Thank you, Numi Rapace, do a fantastic job at, like, conveying that, like- anti-hero sort of demeanor and persona right from the get-go and then throughout. Yeah, and I don't know if it's an artifact of the translation or if it's just the standard woman being written by a man problem, but uh, she is, I think, despite all of the descriptions that say otherwise, she comes off as much more desirable in the book, I think, than she does in the film. She's... Rudy Mara, because I've only seen the American version, is very good at the holding herself sort of alien mm -hmm. from everybody else around her. And even when they're having her be exposed, she's still very like she's holding her body in ways that are not in the normal sort of lexicon of visual sexualization. So she she feels more strange and apart than she gets described in the book, where it's like. It's always, no, 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 she's not hot while I describe how hot she is, which right. never works. Right. Like, I do think, I'm oh, sorry, Pete. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I do think that what you get from the book, which is inherently um, not able to be done in the way that they filmed the movie, um, but one of the, the key components, I think, for anti-heroes is that they don't do things for what we would consider to be classically heroic reasons. True. And while while she definitely has a very strong moral code, I think it is a moral code that is unique to her. Like yes. she has she has what she has decided is right and wrong, which exists independently from what like the law considers to be right and wrong. Um, and if you don't fit within her moral code, she is more than happy to destroy you. <laughs> I, I did not think about this until right now when you said the law in that way, but she is almost the exact opposite of, like, Judge Dredd and the judges because it has nothing yes. to do with the law, capital. It's all about her code, which would not and work on the other hand, the I wouldn't necessarily, you know, on the standard D&D &D alignment chart, make her chaotic good because oh, she'd be she's lawful, not chaotic. She, she is absolutely lawful. It's just not... Yeah, like you say, the capital L law. Yeah. It's a little bit what um, TV Tropes calls blue and orange morality 
instead of black and white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it it exists, but it's on a different scale. Yeah. Um, but for for why I picked her and why I think that she still um, falls very neatly uh, into this framework, uh, one of the things that I've been doing is reading about sort of the progression of the anti-hero trope and the the particular characteristics that have kind of stayed uh, with the anti-hero definition are things that would be diametrically opposed to being a hero. So for Lisbeth, I, I think of that as being she's um, she's very self-centered. Uh, she is, um, what do I want to say? Not self-centered. Uh, she works for primarily her own self-interest. Uh, she has a very strong moral code related to people that I think fit within her framework of who she is. So like she feels very defensive over other women who are also small and victims because I think that's her frame of reference. So, um, you know, she is not like uh, confident or, well, shoot, I'm unraveling she, myself as I'm talking. She, she's not brash. She's not outgoing or... Um... No, she's very internal. She's small. She's not social. It's really hard to like her because she doesn't like anybody. Um, a couple of the the phrases that come up on the TV tropes are misanthropic, violent, and sociopathic. Um, I don't think she's a sociopath. I think she de- displays sociopathic tendencies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in the book, a lot... I think much more so than the movie. Straight up says she's probably somewhere on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I I have some objective objections to on the whole like oh anyone obsessed in a in a work of fiction must be but word of the author versus word of fans is a little better. Well, and I do think Bill, you mentioned this already. I think that this book suffers a little bit from being written by a very being written from a fairly masculine point of view. Like a lot of um, the way that characters react to Elizabeth is a little bit condescending, I want to say, because and the, I mean the... some of that's some of that's intentional, either on her part or she allows it to happen, like with her uh, her ward and with her boss, where she's not building any sense in them that she is who's as frightening as she is, mm-hmm. or as capable as she is, is probably the better way to put it. Mm-hmm. Where yes. she's allowing them to underestimate her. I think it is worth noting the uh, the original title of the book was, I believe, uh, men, men who, who hate, hate women. women. Yeah, men who hate women. Yeah. Which yeah. you know, just about everybody in the book, arguably including Bloomquist, at least in Elizabeth's uh, Elizabeth's read of him. He's the one person who I think you could have a reasonable debate about. I don't think he does. I, I don't either. It's my my great frustration with the book really is the ending, which, you know, assumed spoiler alert, uh, when she goes and buys him a Christmas gift, sees him with the woman that she knows he's with. Yeah. Like she's she's skipping a step because skipping steps is what she does. But to then be so offended by this that she throws the gift away and walks out of his life it is frustrating. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very much a like we don't want to make this the. Hollywood ending, but it feels like a like we have to twist the knife at the end of the book because it's not a regular book. It feels constructed. Not going like too far down this path. Um, I I think that and I might end up cutting this. Um, I think that throughout the book she's displayed as someone who, like, is not good and like you know, has no social graces whether intentionally or unintentionally, and that she she was a very frustrating character to read her internal. Um, when it was her point of view, basically, because it's like, if you just said, like, anything here, anything at all, that would be better yeah. than nothing. Um, so it, it feels on point. She talks about how she enters into sexual relationships very much transactionally and very directly. There's no sort of beating around with, you know, oh, well, are we dating? It's like, no, let's sleep together. We're done. She has the one girlfriend that's over when Bloomquist comes and surprises her. 
and there's no real connections. And she, so she has the connection with Bloomquist that she clearly wants to explore, but then somehow she, in doing so, she completely loses her reason and ends up being hurt by it. Right. Well, and I do wonder if we as readers are supposed to be frustrated with her at that last scene, um, particularly knowing that it's one of three books. So that could be. I, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that I think that the ending is particularly well constructed, but I do think that Bill, I think we are supposed to feel upset with her about how she goes about this. Like I, I think we're supposed to agree, like, hey, you did this really stupidly. Well, um, it's funny because the the paperback that I was reading has the first chapter of the next book, hmm. and her, the next time you see her, she's on a beach in the in Bermuda. Hmm. So it, it could also just be the this is the part where Conan walks away from the village where there has to be a, a crisp separation to make it episodic, to make her be a hero that you can bring back for more books. Uh, on the flip side, uh, like that, that's very possible. Um, I did not know this until like reading the wiki for this. All three books were published uh, posthumously. So it's also yeah, possible. He died that, like... immediately after turning in all the manuscripts, right. which is bonkers right also the fact that he wrote like all three manuscripts in one go instead of like turning in one publishing it turning in the second publishing yeah it. most people you know wait for some success there like is this a good book <laughs> right but i guess he'd been a journalist for a while so he was fairly at least fairly confident in his ability to turn out some writing right right well and then it was a huge deal because he had the material for the next three books in outline format Yes. And there was a there was a huge legal battle between his family and his partner who he never married. So control over his material ended up being this huge issue, which they must have resolved because now somebody else is writing the Elizabeth Salander character. Um, although I haven't looked into seeing how much of his material is from Larson's original. Sure. Uh, plan. In case you're wondering exactly where the Bloomquist and Berger relationship got list- lifted from. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one kind of wonders. Think, Write what you know. I th- and I think one of the clearest ways that we can look at Elizabeth and call her an anti-hero is because of how clearly Bloomquist is just the straight-up hero of this story. Oh, yeah. yes. yes. The, the women fall all over him. He <laughs> solves the mysteries. He gets beaten up by the villain. And he does it without even like wavering in his like the closest he gets to wavering in his moral convictions is like will you publish this and maintain your journalistic integrity (laughs) even if by doing so you will destroy the lives of these innocent people (laughs) it's all wonderfully over the top in like a way that only like a guy who clearly was a journalist would care that much about yeah it's kind of the uh the bioware question you know, save this burning orphanage or kick a puppy. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Well, I don't like dogs, but I do like orphans. <laughs> cool. So uh, let's segue then to our next homework, which uh, I'll go with me. I went with the 1941 uh, film noir movie, The Maltese Falcon, starring Humphrey Bogart as uh, private investigator Sam Spade. Uh, Mary Astor is his femme fatale client who hires him to first protect her and then you know it's a film noir so the plot gets increasingly complicated uh they're going after a MacGuffin that is the Maltese Falcon a very rare or like a priceless um bit of treasure artifact yeah artifact um Peter Laurie is in it doing great work Sydney Greenstreet's in it as a uh, also doing great work um it sort of is the the quintessential and maybe original film noir movie that most other film noirs um like lift from it in some way or another um yeah google says it's the second okay but, but like it prior to some scholarship it was it's it's still the archetypal one right like even if it's the second it's still the like primary one people like stealing yeah, from sam, it in sam spade is the the classic film noir hero yeah um so I, I chose this for a few reasons one is because film noir as a genre is riddled with anti-heroes um so this being sort of the the er film noir that that's a good place to go. Also, he represents a very different kind of antihero. Like Martha, I wanted to steer clear from any sort of comic connection um, because the homework Bill assigned was related to comics. So um, because I think comics are so suffused with antiheroes, I wanted to broaden it out as much as possible. Um, 
Sam Spade is definitely an older version of an anti-hero. He's, he's very suave and charismatic and cunning using his wit, um, but also is in it basically just for the money and has no real, um, you know, scruples. If, if we say that... Uh, False! Well, False! well, so, so if, False! If, if we say that Elizabeth Slander is, um, like, hardcore lawful, I would say that Humphrey, uh, uh, Sam Spade is definitely chaotic. Okay, so here's the thing, Pete. He turns them all in at the end. He's not doing it for... This is this is why I disagree with you so vehemently. Hmm. Throughout the entire movie, he is playing a long con. Mm-hmm. He is he is telling us and the the other parties to this madness that he will take a paycheck and that he will totally help them get this thing for the money and he will totally like uh you know screw whoever need like make whoever the fall guy and whatever except then at the end he calls the police i and he, well, i don't think he's doing it for the cops he's doing it for the partner even if the partner sucks which he does I, I almost am reading it as he is playing every moment in the best way for him at that moment. So, you know, he he's given $10,000, then um, uh, Gutman takes it back, uh, leaving him only with a couple hundred. At that moment, he's like, all right, well, screw you guys, I'm calling the police. If Gutman had gave, like, we can't know for sure. My sense is if Gutman had given him the $100,000 and, and the dude ended up being the fall guy, um, then... He would have been like, all right, that worked out well for me. Since I that didn't disagree. happen, he goes, I so, disagree completely. So <laughs> here's here's my two problems with it. Because it's it's for me, it's one of those movies that's like, this was incredibly important in the time. Mm-hmm. And we have built on it and we have bettered it. The first problem is sort of a personal problem. I don't think mysteries make good movies. Because you I, you can have good procedurals, and you can do good detective stories, but actual mysteries, like, because you have to dole out clues in the limited amount of time that you have versus doing, like, a 400-page novel, mm-hmm. I feel like you end up having to jerk the audience around going, oh, wait, but this, oh, wait, but this, every couple of minutes, so you wind up with a movie that doesn't feel like you ever get a sense of how it's happening. Oh, like this movie unless is definitely tr- a 100 minute exposition dump. Yeah, and unless or if you turn it inside out somehow so you're following the killer or whatever else. There's there's thematic things you can do, but a good mystery novel doesn't usually function that well in film. Mm-hmm. And I the I did other not... problem I have. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. I I didn't realize that Martha had assigned um Girl Dragon Tattoo, which is a mystery novel. This is a film noir has mystery elements, so we sort of doubled right, down on yeah. that direction. The other issue I have is part of it is I believe we wanted to mention the way things got censored into making him more heroic, but it's he's also weirdly passive mm-hmm. in a way that, in my mind, even knowing that Sam Spade is the quintessential hard boiled detective, I don't think of him as being it. It's like he's just constantly things happen. And he reacts, and it's usually wrong. Like when Cairo comes into his office and pulls a gun on him. Okay. We get the heroic moment where he gets the gun away from him. Punches Cairo in the face, knocks him unconscious. <laughs> then he gives the gun and right back. And then he gives him his gun back <laughs> like an idiot. <laughs> and then we just cut to him chuckling as Cairo has a gun. I'm like, this is the stupidest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Maybe a slight exaggeration. I've seen some pretty bad movies. But I was watching this last night when I was pretty tired and uh it was just like this this is terrible your your comment of it being <laughs> of its time i think is really like meaningful it, it is it is very much a piece it's the same reason like i don't go back and watch a lot of bogart movies because i just don't like him mm. he it's it's very much the movie reading like stage kind of vibe of a lot of those early films just leaves me totally cold yeah, I, I enjoy and there's the... stuff in there that's really well done. That like I was trying to notice camera angles and stuff, and like the way they shoot uh, the fat guy whose name is Gutman. Gutman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way they shoot Gutman, sort of from above as he's coming to from being, or as he's about to pass out from being drugged, like sort of making the world stranger around him is really interesting. But Sam Spade himself feels so passive in this movie that. Like maybe he's he's running it minute to minute, or maybe he really is from the beginning just in it to 
get whoever killed his partner. But with the performances being so broad, I can't tell. Mm -hmm. And the like, oh, well, we're in love now for reasons, because we said so. Because it's in early film, so you can't have a sex scene, you can't have any like real sense of connection, and the, it, the whole thing takes place over like three days. This so is, nothing about their relationship ever feels right to me. Right. This was also like in the peak of like the studio production thing. Uh, Marlon yeah, was telling me absolutely. that literally in the next year, 90% of this cast is in Casablanca. Um, yeah. So it's oh, yeah. like it's like you show up on set. All right, guys, what are we filming today? Oh, we're filming the yeah. Maltese Falcon. Great. Let's film it. Which you'd think if these people were starring with each other every other weekend, they would build some freaking chemistry. I was going to say they have better chemistry. <laughs> Uh, this because, was also yeah, it's like they are so square. This was John Huston's first uh, movie directing, and then he went on to have a long and storied directorial yes. career. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's there are like individual snippets of this that are brilliant, but it's one of those things where it's kind of like uh, for me, it's a lot like Citizen Kane, mm -hmm. where it's vital, it's super influential, and it absolutely does not hold up, like <laughs> even a little. Hmm. I don't know. I just thought I just felt for the purposes of this discussion, when when the ending is revealed and he turns everybody in, I it was like, oh, so he's been doing. I don't know. It if if that I, ending I, hadn't existed, would you have a different opinion? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact of it is that I believe that he fully intended. I believe that it ended exactly the way that he intended it to. Like, I, I don't think for a minute that there was ever a point in which he didn't know that he was going to be turning everybody in um, and that he was getting revenge for his dead partner. I think it may also be where the other thing that in my head I sort of associate with the film noir detective story is the voiceover. The, you know, terrible Blood Runner original cut. Uh, you, you sort of expect the cheesy like a dame walked into my office yesterday kind of yeah, the, the calvin over and the top so so you, right so you get the internal life of this character and since you don't get that with sam spade we don't know what his motives are mm -hmm. we don't know whether he was in there just to avenge his partner or if he wanted to get get these people busted for the cops and that makes that that ambiguity work against him if you don't get sold on the characters early on which i didn't right Go, going back to, to a thing that was we've said a few times, um, one thing I think that, like, you know, Bill brought up, it, this is very much a piece of its time, and I think that looking at Sam Spade as a character in terms of 1940s movies, I think he reads much more as an anti-hero then than he might now. True. Yeah, I mean, what's your alternative, like, Rhett Butler? Yeah. I, uh... It's the ending. That, that alone is sinking this for you entirely, isn't it? It, it really is, especially when I'm, I'm looking at my definitions of anti-hero, and Sam Spade is much more of a... Uh, it's, it's the fact that he displays all of these very Robin Hood-type qualities, like mm. being dashing and kind of womanizing and, like, clever and always has that wry smile, and then at the end turns them into the police. <laughs> like, it's The it's funny all part about that, that is... It's all of the swashbuckler characteristics, only with the lawful good alignment. <laughs> the funny part of that is I don't think even calling the cops to have him taken away is the part that throws me about the ending. It's the giving the money back. He gives the money to the cops, the thousand bucks that uh, he got out of Gutman. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah, I forgot about and, that. That's a... Mm -hmm. and, that might, and that might be the sort of... It's sort of the, uh, the heroes must always be broke rule. Because he can't be the guy sitting in his office down in his luck drinking bourbon if he just got a thousand bucks off of his last job. Right. And I don't know if this but is... But it reads so goofy. I don't know if that's Hayes Code or not, because it's very possible that it's like... It's, it's gotta be He can't be Hayes accepting code. a bribe. You know, Batman, Batman is a duly deputized member of the police in 66 for the same reason. <laughs> right, right. All right, well, any other thoughts on the Maltese Falcon before we go into the much more modern and sort of uh, paragonic idea of the modern antihero? 
Watch something else instead. I'm trying to think of a good recommendation. Hard disagree. Uh, if you've never seen Maltese Falcon, you should see Maltese Falcon. But you don't have to watch it. Short. <laughs> I was going to say, at least it was a real tight, like, 100-minute movie. Yeah. I will say I, I would like to read the book. Knowing knowing what they cut to hit Hayes Code, especially my personal favorite, the uh, the fact that Gunsel became an entirely different word because <laughs> yes. people didn't know Yiddish. Yes. In this, uh, Joe Cairo is only kind of coded subtly as gay, and in the book, he is just 100% gay. I would say subtly in the biggest air quotes your hands can imagine, because he's pretty gay in this movie. Yeah, but like uh, in a way that if anyone asks, it's like, what do yeah, you mean? Yeah, it's plausible deniability. It's like, no, 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 he's just, he's just a little effeminate. It's like, he's, no, 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 he's, he's foreign. This is a movie from the 40s. <laughs> yeah, right. That's how you do gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that, that yeah, the gunzel... <laughs> Yes. Gunsel becoming a word that meant something totally different is hysterical <laughs> to me. And I I had heard the other version. I had run into it somewhere else where it was the... Uh, like uses like a mook? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I'm sure all those mooks would be real upset if you told them what the word meant. Right. And I think this was, that was from this movie rather than in the book. I don't think Gunsel was used in the book. Yeah, no. And, yeah. and even if it was in the book, presumably the, the book makes it clear enough that there is a relationship there for the right. actual meaning to be clear. And if you don't know what we're talking about, look on Wikipedia. It's pretty funny. Yep. Yep. Uh, my very last piece of evidence is, again, the TV Tropes page for this movie has uh, this movie contains examples of adaptational heroism. Spade is less morally ambiguous in the film than in the book. He doesn't strip Bridget O'Shaughnessy to search for the missing money. And in general... He is less aggressive and cruel in actions and speech. The prosecution rests. <laughs> All right. Um, Bill, tell us about your homework. So my homework was the unequivocal best action movie of all time, Dread. Take your pick for what you think is also is competes for it. You're wrong. It's the best one. Uh, starring Carl Urban and his chin as Judge Dread, famed UK uh, satirical hero and judge in Mega City One. Do we want a uh, a quick rundown of the plot here? Yeah, just a real quick synopsis, like a, like uh, a two bite. Sure, Judge Dread, uh, best judge in Mega City One, gets assigned a trainee, Judge Anderson, soon to be a side division, to investigate a call at Peachtree's Mega Block, where unfortunately the block has been taken over by Mama crime lord and drug manufacturer and it becomes a lock-in in which dread kills many 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 people in immense stylish fashion and brings the law to peach trees uh, i am upset that not one of us decided to go with we are the law as our intro statement for this podcast so um scrap the I whole thing we're starting over i am that i am always the law yeah like <laughs> podcast over restart. podcast is not the law i'm the law um so bill what do you mean by satirical you said satirical something yes. so yeah satirical hero uh so it's worth noting that originally judge dread was meant as a goof yes kind of on american cop media uh specifically dirty harry the hyper aggressive super brutal cop so they said, okay, how do we turn that up to, like, a thousand? So they started doing a more direct, dirty, hairy ripoff and then kicked it forward into science fiction and with the introduction of the megacities and the super high-tech guns and the crazy motorcycles and stuff. So what I like about Dread, as, like you said, sort of the quintessential modern anti-hero type, and I didn't pick Batman for a couple of reasons that we can go into if we want to. Uh, Dread is a fairly rare hero in that he can be played the way he originally was sort of goofing on like oh look at these american heroes that are super super with the guns and killing everybody and how crazy that is and you can see some of that in the optional homework that i recommended uh dread in mega city 2 which has is a comic from idw that has uh has dread going to california where the california mega city is a parody of American celebrity culture mm. and you have dread as this incredibly dour figure going in there. Like, what do you mean? All of your judges have camera crews that follow them because over there being a judge is like being on an episode of cops all the time. Right. Or you can do what they do in this movie and play him pretty straight. I mean, you get a couple of little nudges with 
with Carl uh, Urban, where you're looking at, like, he is so, so devoted to the law, and maybe it's a little nuts. And you see, like, with the corrupt judges saying, you know, like, Dredd, what are you doing? Nobody is this, nobody is this honest. Right. You got to take the money or get shot. And Dredd gets shot, because that's what he does. He is the law. And both of those function. Like, normally you take a hero that's sort of goofy or super serious, and you go the other way, and it doesn't work anymore. Like, Punisher goes too far that way, and he's a villain. Right. But Dread always works. Knowing the background for Dread, and, and I knew that going in, luckily, helped me a lot with it. Um, I First off, I love the action in this movie as a pure exercise in style. The only thing I've seen recently that comes close is John Wick, and I literally just watched that, like, the day after I saw Dread, so it was a nice one-two punch of <laughs> stylish action. Um, yeah. But, the like, so the first time I saw Dread was when it originally came out. Since then, we've had Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and, and all the rest, which makes sort of the underlying idea of Judge Dread feel a little more off. Um, that's not to say that this movie necessarily does. It definitely doesn't read as a, like, fascistic law and order you know, like, fairy tale land. And I think that's to the credit because oftentimes things like Dread could become that. Um, I feel like the worst Punishers are the ones written by, like, Frank Miller types who are just fetishizing, you know, blowing away all the bad guys. Um, and whilst Dread sometimes does that, there's always that, like, underlying layer that it knows that when it's going that route, it's being so over the top that it is in a way like um uh sending it up um yeah i th i think it's important that in dread like part of it is that it's a comic book so there's very little ambiguity right but the there are occasionally little nods to the the fact that mega city one is absolutely a police state uh like when he sentences the homeless guy outside peach streets right like in, but it's... that almost inevitably there's always a bigger gang happening. There's always something huge happening that is some criminal oppressing everybody. Well, and, and importantly, too, it's So there is still some liberatory urge. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, like and, very and, that. And that's yeah. important. It's like, it's a police state, and the two go hand in hand. Like, there, it's a police state because it's a dystopia, but it's also a dystopia because it's a police state. I don't think anyone writing it, like, working on it, it would be like, if only the judges were 100% effective... It would be awesome, um, because that would just be the oh, yeah. worst kind of. Well, and thing. that's that's also I think where it's important that Judge Anderson exists. Yeah. Um, in the film, she's really important because she's our self-insert character. We have somebody who he has to explain everything to, so it's not just Joe Dredd marches upstairs and blows people away for two hours. He has to stop and say, "Okay, what's the sentence for this?" Uh, you've got the sequence where the the one guy gets left after they kill the uh the guys outside the medical the medical facility and there's the one guy who goes for his gun and then begs anderson not to shoot him and he says you know anderson he tried to his his crime is assault of a judge the sentence is death and she shoots him but it's important that he goes for the gun first mm -hmm. like dread is operating on the law he's never doing this for vengeance and we have anderson there in the comics to be sort of the like you know Hey, Dread, lighten up a little bit, maybe smile occasionally. And also, we got to make sure we look at the law and we make sure that it makes sense. I was going to say, I think the part that um, is important is that he is the law without compassion, which is yes. necessary in this environment that he's in, but also means that there's no room for, there's no room in his law for mercy. Right. Um, or like circumstances or like the, 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 the considerations that we take sort of as human beings um, have no place in his interpretation of the law uh, out of necessity, but it, it still makes him a fairly, I think, brutal character oh, yeah. rather than being sort of classically heroic, even though what he's doing is like upholding the law and saving citizens and keeping the peace. I think what keeps him from being a straight hero is that total adherence to the law over any sort of uh, empathy or sympathy or compassion. 
I, I would also say that his incredibly brutal methods make it hard for him to scan as a hero. Even if he were compassionate and sympathetic, the dialed up to 11 violence is always going to, I think, throw that like pure heroism slightly out of whack and into more of the anti-hero vein. Well, and yeah, and, it, and I think a hero would would leave room for interpretation. That's it's there is no interpretation with dread. You are guilty of this. Therefore, yeah, there, yeah, there's there's never a circumstance. I mean, you look at the scene immediately before the shootout outside the medical center where they're about to go up the stairs and he has Anderson call it. They throw some, they throw gas grenades. You're seeing the effects of the grenades. The guys are dropping to their knees. They're combat ineffective. But in Dredd's mind, that's not the important part. The important part is attempted murder of a judge. The sentence is death. And he's walking up the stairs, two shots in the chest, one shot in the head for every guy on that stairwell. Mm -hmm. Because he still has to carry out the sentence. It's nothing to do with what he wants to do, what he feels he needs to do. He is a judge. That comes first. Right. This brings up a, a good sort of like different kinds of anti-heroes. We've talked about how anti-heroes change over time. Uh, one thing, Martha, that you wanted to sort of get into as we talk about what defines an anti-hero is I feel like right now in our culture we have two big types of anti-heroes. We have the, maybe I'm going to call it like the vigilante anti-hero, which is going to be dread or like serious Batman or um, basically you're doing the hero role, but in a particularly anti-heroic way um yeah the, like iron age heroes too many yeah. pouches too many guns yeah exactly like a 90s hero um the other kind is more like the sympathetic criminal anti-hero and here we would have people like tony soprano or walter white who are the protagonists of the story but are not heroes they are like villains or at least criminals um but because oh, so i'll give you walt through like season four and then he becomes like a true villain then he's totally a villain. I agree, but many people watching it, I don't know, like, made that switch, which is problematic. Um, I was going to say, see, yeah, see also uh, Tyler Durden in the, like, guys, you should have noticed this went over the edge a while ago. <laughs> right, like, he's not the hero, and he never was supposed to be, so stop idolizing him. Um, yeah. But that's, I think that those are sort of, like, the two broad ideas of anti-heroes that we have here in the 21st century. Agreed. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about why... I think that that idea is very connected to um, why our culture finds anti-heroes so appealing, why they crop up so frequently in our media right now. Um, and the idea that I would like to put forth to both of you is that they give tacit permission to people to behave this way. Like when they are when they are positioned, whether intentionally or not, as the hero of a story, viewers can look at it and go, "I feel that way. I can be a jackass like Don Draper." Like this show is whether whether it's a conscious decision or not, they are getting a what they perceive to be a positive role model for this kind of behavior, and having permission to be a dick. I think for a certain segment of our population is very liberating. I don't know if it's permission or catharsis. Like you've got the guys who look at say Rick from Rick and Morty and go, look, here's someone like me who's a genius and misunderstood and a total prick to everybody versus the like uh, Punisher, I think is a pretty good example for a lot of the people that are on the side of a little, maybe a little too much law and order of and why you see all kinds of cop cars and stuff is, oh, I wish I could go out there and do this. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read a book where I can, where I don't think any of those guys think they could actually go be Frank Castle. But both of those, I think, come down to like wish fulfillment, um, which like ties into what Martha yeah. was saying as well. Like, I think that that's it, tacit permission or not. It's fulfilling that that desire. Yeah, I think it's just whether they apply it whether it's an application to your own life or experience by proxy, mm -hmm. I think the direction matters. Yes. I also think it's related to one of the other things I wanted to talk about, which is why um, you don't see as many female anti-hero characters. Uh, first of all, while it is something that is changing, um, slowly but surely, uh, most of the creators who get to have their stories told are still men. Um, and I think it is, 
I'm trying to figure out how to say this so that I don't sound like I'm making generalized statements about how people think. Um, but like I said, I had a really hard time finding stories that featured female anti-hero characters. Like women tend to either be straight up villains who get rehabilitated mm-hmm. or um, good guys. Like there are not a lot of just unapologetically uh, um, like unapologetically morally ambiguous. I don't feel the need to change my behavior or be like saved or rehabilitated. Uh, there are not very many female characters out there. And I think that a large part of that is that most of our stories are still being told by men. Um, and it's women just don't figure that way into a lot of male driven stories. Uh, which is too bad because I'm 100% here for unapologetic, uh, you know, alpha bitch characters. Um, what would your take on a like Bridget O'Shaughnessy, like the femme fatale, um, because she's like not rehabilitated at the end, but no, but she's also I, I don't think she's, she's an anti-hero, just, but no, she is just a villain. Like mm-hmm. she's the temptress. She's the temptress that like is trying to. Uh, you know, poison is trying to lead Sam Spade into this. Like she's trying to ensnare him. She's like the mm-hmm. the Black Widow type uh, spider character. Sure, sure. Which is a very prominent uh, female villain trope. Right. Um, I I think part of this and too. That come... one goes back to biblical times. <laughs> I think part of this too comes down to like what society um finds even like borderline acceptable, like male violence is not acceptable but is accepted like if that makes sense um whereas you can't yeah yeah Um, you can't do it but you can watch it right whereas like all the things that like are traditional anti-hero like traits are ones that are at least somewhat valorized among some subsets of men as like good masculine traits whereas they're they're not very masculine yeah um also, men get in trouble less frequently for being quote-unquote unlikable characters. Like, for some reason, it is, like, uh, female characters who dare to be um, unlikable for whatever value um, unlikable might have at the time are lambasted much more frequently uh, than male characters. Uh, male characters tend to get away, in general, with worse behavior. And I think that, like, Lisbeth is a good... At- counterexample here where the only reason she gets away with it is because she is so far outside of the norm and the mainstream that it's like nothing really applies to her like we're not judging her on any um like any sort of level um it is surprising to me that her character was as well received by popular culture as she was and i think it's because she was so alien on every dimension that like you know, it, it, she wasn't even, like, she was obviously a woman encoded that way, but not really. Um, well, and she's still within, like, a standard deviation of sexiness. Right. The Or at least the, like, the other act, characters she, in the book act that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, I mean, you look at the way she's described in the book versus the way she appears in the movie. Uh, she's four foot eleven, ninety pounds in the book and described as anorexic (laughs) yeah yeah as opposed to numir pace or rooney mara who guess what you dye their hair black and give them a bunch of piercings and they're still really hot yeah like because you cast a hollywood like actor right i mean she she is still within the description within the way the characters react to her she's still attractive Mm -hmm. and that's sort of the I think the big question is, does the author still want to sleep with them? If they do, they still they can put them in there. So one thing, in, and in our last episode, we talked about toxic masculinity, and I assigned The Sopranos kind of as the, you know, much like I did with Maltese Falcon here, I went with, like, the first or at least the, like, the er example of a big trend in culture. Um, right now the big event TV is very 
very heavy on antiheroes, um, both your prestige shows and your Netflix originals and, and whatever else. Many, many, many of them focus around antiheroes or antihero characters. Um, we mentioned earlier that, like, in the 90s, Iron Age comics, that was, like, all antiheroes. Even the traditional heroes kind of took on some antiheroic traits. Why do we think that this has become the defining element of, like, so much of pop culture right now? Um, we talked a little bit about how it's it's that um, either wish-fulfillment fantasy or that permissiveness but is there anything else going on uh, that you guys think of that would, like, make them so appealing? Um, and possible think, side question, do you see it going away anytime soon? I think part of it is because the lazy perspective is that straight straightforward heroes are boring. Batman is always um, cooler than Superman. Well, I, yeah, basically. Because, like, the, the big trend right now is to make even very straightforward superheroes, like, dark and gritty. And I remember before the first Captain America movie came out and proved us all incredibly wrong, how everybody was like, how is this going to be inter an interesting movie? Captain America is kind of goofy. Um, so I think that the lazy answer is that uh, heroes that are just straight up and down heroic um, are considered incorrectly, I would say, to be boring. And that things that are darker and more morally ambiguous um, are considered to be like edgy and cool and interesting. Um, but I do think that with how successful the Marvel, the MCU has been, uh, particularly how great Chris Evans as Captain America has been, I think some of that has been turning around. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants 90s Superman sweet mullet. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> When, when they had to kill him and do all this stuff to make him interesting again, right? So they, I think, yeah, I think part of it is, uh, in comics specifically, I think it's that you've got a lot of insider writers who are people who have been reading since the 40s, since the 60s, since the 80s, and say, well, that's it. We've told every Superman story, forgetting, like, the fundamental thing in comics that every issue is somebody's first book. Mm-hmm. So you have to have something there for everybody. And if that something is that Superman is this avatar of truth, justice, in the American way, there should be a place for that. And if you don't have a place for that, there's a problem with your world, not with the hero. Um, and that the idea of heroes driven by pain, heroes driven by vengeance, heroes driven by tight, tight leather pants is a more yeah. adult... <laughs> is a more like adult story when everybody is saying, Oh, well comics are for kids. So we need to make graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that gets fixed with greater diversity in character types. Not everyone has to wear tights much as that hurts me as a, as a long, long, long time Batman fan. There is room in this world for fantasy comics and science fiction comics and for slice of life stuff. And just bonkers off the wall ideas like lumberjanes and for each of those books there is an audience and i think i'm hoping my my fingers crossed dream is that with disney owning marvel and warner brothers owning dc that eventually one of those two giant corporations notices that so many of their sales now are coming outside of the normal comics pipeline that they just explode it just burn down diamond the system is broken. Let's bring comics to everybody. Let's bring these heroes to everybody. And there will still always be a place for Batman, for Punisher, for Judge Dredd to kind of look at what we're afraid of and turn that, which I think with Batman more so than Punisher is really the thing. Batman is a character about fear, not about the vengeance. And I think it's when authors forget that they get right. bad and they right. are Frank Miller in the right hands. Right. Yeah. Uh, Frank Miller wrote one good Batman book. It's called Year One. The rest of the stuff is trash. Yep. Sorry, guys. Uh, you, you should well, have to be in some sort of like postgraduate program to be allowed to read The Dark Knight Returns, because if that's the first comic book you read, you're just going to turn out wrong. Well, and, and speaking of comics, I do think that there is slowly but surely like a sea change. Obviously, we've been out of the Iron oh, yeah. Age for a long time. But we have, you know, comics like Miss Marvel 
and like Squirrel Girl, which is and like, that's totally it. Is that yeah. Marvel? I think was really quick to realize that what worked in their movies was having fun, mm-hmm. and that that works in their books, and that they sell books that are not super dark, gritty. Let's do another, uh, another saber tooth story. Those those you know Wolverine stories sell to me in a comic book store, but Kamala Khan sells to a million little girls around the world. Mm-hmm. DC's best-selling book is Marvel superhero or DC superhero girls with like the Muppet babies versions of Batgirl, Harley Quinn, etc. And it's all out in the world. And I think they, in their movies, they're noticing it's like, Oh wait, the only movie we've made since the first of the new Superman movies that wasn't an absolute burning pile of garbage was suicide squad. Which was still an absolute burning pile of garbage. I, I was going to say Wonder Woman. Sorry, Wonder Woman. I'm forgetting Wonder Woman. I, which yes, be, because I, I was sorry. Su- Suicide Squad might be worse than BVS, uh, which is an entirely other it's conversation. Not, no, but, it's not. No, I was I was going to say Suicide Squad. You you have when they let those people have fun, it's a fun movie, which is sort of the relevant you know find the find the shiny thing in the pile of of garbage. But yes, Wonder Woman obviously. Uh, as an avatar of hope and not sucking, Love. you have. Yeah, yeah. Look, you have that movie embodies all the things that are you have not. Two acts of a perfect movie there, and then the third act happens. Yeah, it's and... a movie, but and I forgive it forever. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's it's a fantastic <laughs> movie. It's no no movie is flawed except Dread. <laughs> the uh, and quite frankly, the trench sequence in Wonder Woman makes up for. Not for the rest of the DC DC Cinematic Universe, but at least the third act of that movie being awful. Yeah. Well, that seems um, like a good place to end, hopefully, a note of hope in this darkness <laughs> of anti And how I apparently can't remember the only good DC movie. <laughs> right. Um, in my defense, I sleep, like, twice a week. I, I, I forgive you because I love you. And Wonder Woman would want me to. I'm glad I had nothing in my mouth when you said the only good DCU movie was Suicide Squad. Um, Otherwise, I would ruin all my electronics. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, Thank you all for listening. You can find us on the web at uh, on Twitter at our handle DYDYH podcast. You can Facebook us, shoot us a Facebook message with show ideas, um, feedback, thoughts. If you want to be on the show, yeah, drop us a line. Maybe we'll pull you in. You can also send all that information to us over email, show at homeworkpodcast.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, SoundCloud, wherever it is that you're listening to this. Uh, because that is how the algorithm goblins find us and bring it further up the list so that other people can listen to it. Also, tell your friends. Rate us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whichever it's going by these days. Probably Apple Podcasts. Um, Also, tell your friends about the show. Force them to listen. Take headphones, jam it in their ears, and hit play. Uh, Be the anti-hero you want to see in the world. Yes, yes. No, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Too late. <laughs> um, Bill, do you want people to be able to find you online? And if so, where? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Conspire, C-O-N-S-P-Y-R-E, where it is mostly just badges from uh, the beer app is untapped. Mm-hmm. Mostly just badges from untapped. But occasionally I will retweet things and very, very rarely I will tweet things. <laughs> is there anything else you'd want to plug or tell people about or anything like that? Uh, there's five minutes left in the game, and it's 7-4 Penguins, so I'm feeling pretty good. All right, yeah. cool. Good plug. Um, Martha, how about you? Where are you on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me all places at Magical Martha. Cool. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000. Martha, what are we doing next week? Uh, next week we and are by doing next week, a... we all mean next episode. Next episode, uh, we are doing another part one of a two-part expanded topic. We are going to be talking about Vice. Uh, We will be joined by a friend of the show um, and another uh, member of the 40 Going On 14 crew, Pat Whaley. Uh, His homework for us all is the, I believe it's 1998 film, Rounders. My homework is the 2008 rock opera repo the genetic opera directed by darren lynn bozeman 
and starring Anthony Head Stewart and Paris Hilton, among many others. Uh, are, what? I did not know Anthony that. Oh, yes. I'm even more excited. Anthony Stewart's head. Daddy, this movie is great. This oh, movie man. rules. Great is a bad word for it, but you'll have fun. It's not be it's drunk. the best word for it. Uh, well, and, and I'm assigning, I guess I'm following my trend of assigning the original paragonic examples of things. I'm assigning Neuromancer by William Gibson, a.k.a. the book that invented cyberpunk. Now, if any of us had been wanting to do, like, the genesis of Vice, somebody would have assigned the Divine Comedy. Oh, yeah, that would take the cake for longest thing we've read. I have I have some words about which Gibson you're picking, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, you know, it's it's the intro Gibson. Cool. Uh, I guess I need anyway. to end the podcast. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So uh, thank you all for listening. We will catch you in two weeks. Make sure you do your homework. Class dismissed. Class dismissed.